Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday mornings for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, good. Welcome back to you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I didn't really go anywhere this week, but I thank you for that. Um, all right. What do you know of, and again, I know, you know we always talk about following news on this side of the world, etc. But, I mean, from your perspective, Jewish leadership uh, position, uh, what do you know about this shooting earlier in the week at the Young Israel of North Miami Beach? It's still not clear. I mean, we found out about it literally within minutes of it and SCAN, our security and operation, um, was on top of it from the first, uh, literally the first minutes and had been in touch both with the local community, with FBI, with police. And uh, after the initial uh, reports, which were obviously taken very seriously and are very serious, uh, that somebody sitting outside a shul waiting for Mincha was, was shot in the legs that somebody drove by, and it appears somebody who circled the block before, but uh, within a short while they were saying we're not exactly sure of the motivation, uh, which is usually a sign that there might have been some altercation or something not necessarily involving this person and that he was just uh, either mistaken identity or, or a different target that somebody on the block had had uh, some difference or altercation with the with the government. As none of this is proven, none, and there have been no conclusions as you've seen, and the investigation is, uh, is still ongoing. So one can't conclude that it's a random hate crime, and at the same time, as you just said, you can't yet conclude that it was either a personal matter or a misunderstanding in terms of somebody who was trying to settle a personal matter, et cetera, et cetera. Nonetheless, I, I don't know. I... I I would think, especially among the Orthodox community, because this was a you know an Orthodox synagogue, I, I would think the reaction nationwide would have been you know one of much more uh, panic and one one of uh, you know of uh, of greater reaction from well, our. There was a strong reaction immediately uh, after the announcement, uh, and don't forget during the summer and some days and stuff that it's uh, right. in the true. evening it's. Uh, Limited, you know, it's more limited. Right. But I think as soon as the word got out that they weren't uh, concluding anymore, that it was necessarily a, a hate crime. I think all those things may have muted uh, some of the response. We put out a statement; others did. And as I told you, it, it, you know, got involved immediately just to right. find out. Uh, it, regardless of the circumstance, it's very troubling. Right. It, it's not to excuse what happened; it's just to understand it. Uh, but, you know, t- this week we held a conference to try to pull the Jewish community together on the issue of anti-Semitism, what's being done, how we coordinate, how we maximize resources, what, what gaps there are. And we had planned it for 50 people. 140 people came. They represented 58 organizations from across the country and even from Canada. And uh, the, the conference, the meeting went over six hours with really extensive discussions about from uh, ranging from uh, the situation in kindergartens to 12th grade and campus uh, to security issues to we had uh, links to Europe and to find out what are the lessons we can derive from uh, the leaders uh, leadership in Europe and the head of the British Jewish community even was there the uh, there's a real sense of of the seriousness of this moment and it's cross the board right to left at a time when everybody has to come together and put aside differences, not ignore them, but put them aside, to look at the commonality of interests we have, 
that the the challenge is far too great for any one group, and it's far too great for a time of recriminations and personal perspectives taking um, priority over the common interests and common goals. It's really essential today, and we're going to move towards a national assembly uh, featuring non-Jews, non-Jews coming out and taking stands, and it's time to put the onus where it belongs because we are not the perpetrators, we're the victims. And therefore, it rests upon everyone else to take a stand. And we're seeing that that response has also been very encouraging. Uh, you saw the Pew poll that said that Jews were the most, of all religious groups, it was the most, uh, they had the most favorable rating, even above Catholics and Protestants and Buddhists and others. Um, the, the differences aren't, weren't great percentage-wise, but the, the, it, it is a statement as well. And the the um, you know the challenge right now is that we're being hit from so many different sides from the internet, and we had internet experts there and talking about how the, it's manipulated and it's it's done in ways that we can't even imagine how many sites there are, how they can put out a message and infiltrate all of the regular media with it uh, with no fingerprints. That the community really has to say this is a priority, and that starts with security at our schools and schools, to the broader national legislative front, to the FBI and police taking it seriously and pursuing cases and people reporting them, because we still believe the vast majority of anti-Semitic incidents, whether it's harassment and stuff, don't get reported. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I understand that sometimes, uh, you know, why the victims would not, because you read about these episodes that seem insignificant in the big picture. And one from Great Britain I read about yesterday, and and you wonder if it's worth reporting. But as you always say, every one of them is worth reporting. Uh, so well said on all these things. I just want to add one thing and, and ask for your help on this. Um, someone made a comment to me this week. We have no security in our synagogue for the following reason. I said, why? So he said, because we're across the street from a major synagogue, and if someone's going to try and attack something in our neighborhood, obviously it's going to be that target. How silly is that evaluation? It is very serious because protection is not about prevention, it's about deterrence. So if they see that the synagogue across the street has one door open with a guard there, they will go and look at the more vulnerable target. And often the attacks are taking place in place, you know, that they scout out, they see the pattern, they see whether there are security guards, and the, the um, tendency is for them to strike because, look, these people are cowards. They don't strike military targets. They don't shoot the police. <laughs> they shoot innocent people at prayer. They, they shoot innocent civilians. It's like terrorists. I mean, they are terrorists, but, but the... The, um, the the M.O. is that they, they look for the most vulnerable target. And so he, they are, in fact, maybe being set up. And because there's a big synagogue, it may be deterred, from which they may be deterred, they will turn to, to the more vulnerable place. No question about that. Um, all right, well, while we're here in the U.S. in our discussion, what did you think of Bernie Sanders' statement about cutting military aid to Israel? I don't take the things that he says necessarily. I, mean, I, I take it seriously, but obviously it's, it's um, you know, these are all campaign slogans, ones that they might implement if elected. But, you know, the support for aid to Israel remains very strong on a bipartisan basis. We saw it in the votes this year. I think it continues to be. Is it vulnerable? Yes. Can we take it for granted? No. 
because you have other people, Rand Paul, others who, who have opposed uh, aid. But he said, he didn't say to cut it, he said he would consider it, as right. I recall, um, a, as an option. And his venom for, for the prime minister and for uh, policies and, and attacks on Israel generally about the nature of the relationship are of concern when you see this permeating uh, so much of the of a national party uh, where people are afraid to come out and and be assertive in their support for Israel and you know things that traditionally would have been automatics that are not necessarily the case and we have to be concerned about what will happen at the Democratic uh, Party's convention right. which is a highly profile high profile event and if you remember last time I was just going to say you, that's correct over the resolution and right. it passed in a questionable way, even because of that, but because the chairman of the, of the convention, others wanted it to pass and declared it. So those who were there were not so sure. And you're correct about the, it can, he would consider withholding uh, military aid. Of the 20, if someone asked them that question directly, would you consider withholding military aid? I wonder how many of the 20 would raise their hands. What, what do you think? Do you have any, any idea what the, uh, who, who would still be you know, concerned enough about not raising their hand because of you know is Israel and Jewish support and where they come from in terms of what regions and you know districts they represent and which are ready to hop on the Sanders bandwagon on this. Any guess what it might be? Well, first thing the answer is too many. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And the second is that uh, um, it depends on how the question is asked. If it's asked, uh, well, will you support continuing aid if they annex the West Bank or something uh, like that, which has become an issue, and you see that they. Several of them have made statements about it. But it's clear that the, the influence of some of the more extreme elements permeates uh, the party. And, by the way, the Republicans have their own uh, uh, problems. That, but these weeks, the, the Democratic candidates have been more visible. The fact that, that international affairs was virtually absent completely right. from these debates is really a statement in of itself. And that's about the media and about not about uh, the candidates, the most of whom I think would be would, would ask, be supportive uh, of the U.S.'s relationship. Uh, I mean, everyone puts their own imprimatur on it, but the fact is that, you know, people are very critical, let's say, of the Obama administration. They, they did a 10-year, you know, multi-billion dollar deal with Israel that uh, guarantees the $3.8 billion per year in, in the aid and was reconfirmed now by this administration and uh, Congress. They passed overwhelmingly the anti-BDS legislation. The problem is that the few hostile voices, and especially certain individuals, soak up all the public attention. They get everything they say is taken as if it's some sort of uh, gospel truth from, from you know on high. When they're by, by and large ignorant and don't know what's going on, and that the same voices get drowned out. I mean, it's true even amongst academics. It's true in every circle, but particularly in politics, especially in a year when you, when everything is so charged. And the growing polarization and politicization of politics here is is very destructive. And it's it it then gives people marginal people a platform, which only enhances their role and it helps them raise money. And they are building networks and recruiting people. Uh, behind their banner, and, and it usually happens when there is a vacuum, and, and unfortunately, the wrong people are filled. One of the only Democrats who did focus on foreign affairs this week was a local congresswoman, you know who I'm referring to, Ocasio-Cortez, who made sure to defend the Palestinian rioters because Israel continues to marginalize them, in her opinion. 
Uh, I don't know what strategy Jewish leaders can use other than trying to unseat her next time around. Well, uh, I don't get into the politics, uh, but I think that the best policy would be sometimes to ignore her. Because every time we build her up by, by keeping the focus on her rather than on all the Congress people who are doing great things but get no recognition, so they see the only way to get the attention, which then results in fundraising and all sorts of other things, impacts all those things, uh, is to say these, the, the more extreme, uh, kind of take more extreme positions like them. So I would, uh, and I don't think we should glorify it with the squads and with all these things that, you know, transform people who are, in most cases, not well-informed, uh, and and we should put the focus on the on the good guys. So as superfluous as this statement might sound, there are plenty of Democrats still doing great things for Israel and other good things. Absolutely right. And, and look at the Foreign Relations Committee. Look at the uh, uh, the bills that are coming out, and the uh, you know they resurrected the bipartisan task force on anti-Semitism, the the support for uh, the aid to Israel package. The everything's just in the, in the last few days. So. There are, and, um, and, and believe me, many in the Democratic Party are very upset and worried about the impact and the radicalization of, of uh, their party and uh, Republicans about, any, about the extremism. We see it from the left. We see it from the right. We see it from Muslims. We see it from minorities. We see it from so many different sectors that um, it's no one source and no one party. This is not... Uh, a particularist issue. This is uh, unfortunately becoming uh, more and more generalized. And, and when we see how young people are infected with anti-Semitism, with Holocaust ignorance and even Holocaust denial, that uh, as one symptom of it, uh, but more than that, that uh, as the increase in anti-Semitic attacks here in Great Britain and elsewhere include physical assaults in record numbers, and the and uh, that the NYPD report you know really speaks for itself that the uh, the numbers are uh, and that 67 percent of the attacks are against Jews, and that there was an 80 percent increase uh, this year. Uh, many there's so many statistics and things that we could discuss, but the, the bottom line is that there is a real challenge and something that we have to take very seriously uh, here and abroad. We've proven that America is not immune to it. Democracy, as I said yesterday, is an antidote. It's not a preventative, and we have to take the steps necessary to assure that we we have done everything possible to protect uh, our communities and to fight the hatred and bigotry that, that we see so uh, so prevalent in many places. Democracy is an antidote, not a... Preventative. Preventative. Excellent. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com and the NahumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents and Major American Jewish Organization. So Yaakov Katz has this big article today about uh, why is Israel outsourcing its national infrastructure to China. Uh, you and I have discussed and in some ways pondered some of the deals that have gone on between Israel and China until he outlined some of these, though I didn't realize to what degree they're really in with China. Three three. Little pieces, just bear with me. Three little pieces from the article, and I want your reaction. One, there is barely a meeting today between U.S. officials and their Israeli counterparts 
in which China's issue, in which the China issue does not get mentioned. Energy Secretary Rick Perry brought it up last week during his talks with Netanyahu as the Secretary of State Pompeo during his visit, John Bolton, etc. The second is all warn Israel about the repercussions of giving the Chinese too much access to Israel's economy, not to mention the growing investments by Chinese VCs and Israel's high-tech firms and startups. And number three, it would be one thing if Israel, uh, if Israel was just another country doing business with China, one U.S. official explained, but Israel is one of our closest allies with which we have a high degree of intelligence cooperation. Having that intelligence fall into Chinese hands is something America is not willing to risk. Your reaction? Well, it's uh, American, America and others are very sensitive to the, the uh, expanding role and objectives of, uh, of China, the uh, one road, one belt policy, which is uh, enabling it to, to build uh, contacts and uh, purchase and infiltrate in countries around the world. And if you go to Africa, go to other places, you see the growing uh, investment and role, and they seem to have unlimited funds to do it, even though there are economic limitations, I think, in China today. The, um, uh, and the particular concern that gave rise to a lot of this was the outsourcing of control of one of the seaports in Israel. And they right. said if, if, the, if Haifa or us or anywhere else is controlled by China, American ships will be reluctant to, uh, military ships, to dock and will be prevented, in fact, from doing so because concerned that intelligence and other things will be will be leaked. And there is a history of, of China um, taking intellectual property or, or um, constantly in, um, involved in, uh, in uh, espionage or, or some lighter term than that, uh, but even that. And therefore, the United States is very hesitant about the growing involvement in Israel because of the interaction, because of the sensitive uh, military equipment and relationship. And you have the exercises, other things that go on almost on a regular basis between the countries. Uh, so it's sort of a warning right now, but it could escalate into some sort of a, a repercussion, economic repercussion, or as I said, you know, the Six Fleet stopping to call there, which was a, a big achievement. Uh, for a long time, they didn't. Uh, that uh, I think it's a policy on the part of Israel. They're not ignorant of the concern, but at the same time, it's a huge market. There are I don't know, 100,000 or 150,000 Chinese that will visit Israel this year. The number grows each year. Uh, they invest in, in Israeli high tech, who, which is always hungry for more and more VC and, and investment money. And the, it's, it's, a, it's a real dilemma for them. And, uh, you know, the Chinese have bought even the dairies in Israel. Right. They found out that Jewish cows give more milk. <laughs> does, and, does Russia care as much about the Israel-China relationship? Uh, I'm sure it's not. They're not as public about it. And remember that today, Russia and China are working together on a lot of things. We saw that recently in the Far East. So it might be less relevant to them in terms of concern. Probably less relevant is a good term. Um, uh, the Boris Johnson appointment. He's the new Prime Minister of England. His new Defense Minister, Ben Wallace. What's your right. opinion on Ben Wallace? Well, I don't know him, but I, I do know a lot about him, and uh, what we know is of great concern. Uh, Johnson has always been touted as a great friend of Israel, and 
I think the appointment would be is very troubling. This is a man who went with Corbyn, the head of the Labour Party, and and has tolerated the anti-Semitism and maybe one himself um, to Iran. He says that he has visited Iran more than anybody, any other minister, anybody else. He has been a defender of Iran and of the uh, JCPOA, and putting him in as a, as defense minister doesn't sound exactly like an encouraging signal. Uh, and has uh, the, the Jewish Friends of Labor came out and said it was utterly shocking, and people on both sides of the aisle were expressing uh, regret, even from his own party, uh, concern about the uh, the appointment. Not that I know much about British politics, but I wonder who he was trying to satisfy. Like, was this was this part of the you know the machinations of forming a government that we sometimes see, where one is trying to build bridges with another party or another side? It, it could be, and maybe that he's signaling some openness right. uh, for to to Iran. Maybe he, this is a he, he can't be uh, ignorant of the potential implications and how people would would view it. Um, but you know he he is also we told given to brash actions and I, I don't know whether this was something he had promised something that he did for for reasons and especially at a time when we see you know the pressure for more talks that the um, even the United States making uh, some sort of outreach at the same time we added sanctions this week to the foreign minister Zarif because he's seen as the Chief liar and uh, uh, I mean the chief <laughs> spokesman and the um, uh, and the administration took action against him, which I think is uh, really important. But Iran's aggressiveness is is increasing all the time. You know that, and you see the impact of the of the sanctions. Nahum, you know that they they passed a bill yesterday that cut four zeros from their currency. Wow! So somebody, talk about devaluation. At five thousand dollars, it's five dollars. Wow! So it's, it's and they changed the name from Rial to Tomar, and at, uh, and the they're saying, oh, this was in the works, et cetera, et cetera. It, it isn't. It isn't true. Well, they think psychologically they can convince people that they're you know they're not in as desperate an economic you know situation as they really are. And the and the well, people couldn't they couldn't afford printing all the money that was necessary. If you went into to wow. a, a grocery store, you had to take a, a suitcase for, for, with money, uh. and so you cut it back. But remember, that means somebody who had a pension or had a bank account is now four zeros less on it. It's it's it is really a, a strong statement that the um, and but yet they continue. They they tested a new. A Shahab three missile, which is capable of carrying a nuclear warhead, about went about seven hundred miles. Oil is down. They said maybe down to a hundred thousand this month, and even last month it was three to five hundred thousand. China has cut back, the, and so the, the the but become more more aggressive. There, uh, there's more evidence of their involvement both in in Lebanon, Hezbollah, with and and Syria as well as in Gaza, much more in Gaza than before, and saying that if, uh, they said if there's a front opened in the north, that they would open a front in the south. And all of this can happen without the involvement of, uh, of, of Iran. And, and the Hezbollah is, is building fortresses along Israel's uh, northern border, the border with Lebanon. The Lebanese villages have been described now as becoming uh, fortresses, uh, which will complicate 
and necessitate Israel's response to be even stronger. That's always been a concern and, and scary, frankly, and I think we've discussed it you know, many, many times, and that would be if, if there would be a buildup both up north and you know, in the south, and, and God forbid there would be you know, an attempt to challenge Israel on both fronts, and and frankly, I don't know. I mean, not 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 to God, especially this time of year. Not to God forbid, uh, wish it on anybody. But I, I I always wonder why the enemy never really went in that direction yet, right? Would it, there would be really no time in the last ten twenty years where that type of effort has been made, right? Well, they did escalate it when there were uh, tensions um, going on, or they they would uh, escalate to a point, but. Right now, in the north, they're trying to build the infrastructure. They're trying to get closer and closer to the Golan. We see more of a presence, both of the militia. Hezbollah actually has been redeployed in Syria in the last uh, 10 days or so to the border area with Lebanon and to, uh, and to the Golan, which is the, you know, seen as the vulnerable place for them. That's why they built the tunnels there, et cetera, and where Iran is probably putting the, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the emphasis so the, um, um, the Israel has continued to act against Iranian locations, including perhaps one uh, a strike this week in Iraq that hit a fuel depot for their, for Iranian missiles. How large is the Iranian presence in Iraq? Pardon me. How large is the Iranian presence in Iraq? Very large. They, I mean, they are the dominant. Soleimani is there with the IRGC. And the Iraqis have actually resisted uh, somewhat, and the, but their presence there is very serious. And they moved, it seems they may have moved some of their operations, thinking they would be impenetrable in Iraq. But Israel showed them this week that that was not safe either for them if they continue to engage in, in these activities, which are prohibited by Security Council resolutions, uh, at least most of them. And the... Um, uh, but but Israel has strike has hit and and struck many targets and you see that Iran has not retaliated because Iran understands that Israel is serious and the consequences will be dire for them. So basically, and that's the message that Iran has to get. They have to get it from everybody. You can't flirt with them and you can't send them mixed signals. They got to understand. And when Europe keeps promising them the instex and all sorts of other alternatives to bypass UN sanctions, all of them have proven to be zeros. Nothing, and they uh, and the but they keep offering them the out and promising them you know that they're going to fight for the relationship and they send their diplomats to uh, to Tehran. Well, mixed signals don't work with the Iranians and with with the dictators like that. And the only uh, and the only signal that the Iranians give their citizens is, is is that if they have any money to spend, they're going to spend it on military. Basically, they're not there. They're not there to help their own people. Uh, uh, nothing at all, and the uh, you know the very fact that that they that they've let the economy deteriorate to the point that it has, and without oil income, it will deteriorate even further. But it's not Khamenei, and it's not the IRGC, and others who will suffer. It's the vast masses, the people, upon whom they will visit the, the consequences of their uh, radical policies. And there's no revolution in sight, there, huh? There's no movement. There's no. There is a great deal of movement, but we're not supporting it properly. We're not helping those forces, uh, which is really the way I believe that, that you'll get real change, is if the people from the inside who do want to see this government go and, and want more freedom, and you see it amongst young people, you see it in the cities, in the demonstrations that took place, 
but it hardly gets any resonance in the West, and then they feel isolated and alone. Why did Naftali Bennett allow Ayala Chaked to become the leader of the right-wing parties? Because I think he saw that she was more popular and uh, read the tea leaves and, and that she had more support within and without. You know, today's report says that uh, Likud is doing a little bit better than people thought. We, we, we've been looking at it over the last couple of weeks as a dead heat between the two major parties. Now it looks like Likud may have uh, you know, a, a, the potential to have a couple more mandates than labor, or than the left, I should say. Well, I think both things are operative, the dead and heat, that there are a, a lot of things, uh, aspirations that, that have died and views that have changed, and it certainly has been hot in Israel. But the, this week, uh, two days ago, was the uh, filing deadline, and I think the latest count is there were 32 parties that registered. Wow. Which is ridiculous. Um, and they divide the vote, and, and a lot of votes get lost because you have a 3.25% threshold, which people here don't understand that if you don't reach that threshold, your votes are, are thrown out. It's not that you still can get elected if, with the numbers. If you don't pass that threshold, you're, you're not there, and, and those votes get wasted. So that's why you see these coalitions of different parties coming together because they want to assure, number one, that they pass the threshold. Unfortunately, the beneficiary so far seems to be Lieberman. The latest polls show him perhaps even 10, 11 seats. I don't believe that. I think it will go down again. Uh, I think uh, the, there is a lot of desire for a unity government to, to emerge. Um, there are, you know, he is running against, uh, Lieberman is running against uh, Haredim and against, the, even though he had a good relationship with those parties. Um, but, you know, he doesn't want a halachic state, he said, and um, I don't, uh, would not want to see this be a referendum on that. It's, uh, it's going to be very heated, I think, until we get to the election on September 17th. And, but more than half of the people in Israel in a poll just this week said they wanted a unity government because I think they're tired of this. This is second campaign, you know, in a few months. It's very expensive. It's tedious. And the, um, uh, you know, the comments get to be more and more severe, the attacks. And this is before the real focus, which will be in the coming weeks. All right, so we're 47 days away, but if, 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 if things, the way things look right now, again, you just said Lieberman likely will not be getting the number of votes eventually that people are predicting right now. But the way it looks right now, he would be a kingmaker. He'd have the potential to form some type of government, and if, in fact... No, no, he can't form a government. He no, can meaning, influence the correct. governments that are formed. Meaning he could, he could help someone form a government. Right. right, right. He could help someone form a government. Um, otherwise, it, 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 I, I can't imagine that it would be anything other than a unity government. There'd, there'd be no other choice, frankly. The numbers don't bear out any other option at this point, right? If they remain basically where we think they are, the numbers right now. Um... Well, and it also depends. Could there be a split between Gantz and Lapid, so blue and white, one goes blue and one goes white and separate? Or do they uh, stay together? Uh, if the um, right wing block if, gets 15 seats and the religious get right. 15, that's 30. Right. And if we could get you know, 30 seats, then you have a, a, a government. I don't think it's the one that people, that Netanyahu necessarily wants. Right. He said he doesn't want a right-wing uh, government. Well, also because it would be a 61-seat government, which you know, is never good for him. Right. And, the, and then, again, you have the, the Lieberman's factor comes into play. Right. So right now I think it's much too early to predict the outcome of, of this, but 
whether the public pressure for a unity government would actually succeed. Those first two weeks of September in Israel are going to be insane. Yes, you could be sure of that. Wait till we see the pictures, the posters, ah, the it, signs that are starting to go up. Yeah, it's the, just going to with the, the president. But then, but then, Putin, the, but then, but then, I mean, now the posters, as we said last week, are up, but the the rhetoric is going to get so insane during those two weeks, especially with Lieberman, who really doesn't hesitate to say anything, frankly, whatever he wants to say, whatever's on his mind. Yeah. Whatever he thinks will broaden his base. Right. Finally, is there going to be a Camp David summit or not? I, I, there may be, but uh, I don't see anything imminent. I don't see the so no way, now. no way before the election they'd play that game. No way before the Israeli election they would have some type of uh, of meeting. I, I just don't see the, who who would be at the meeting, and and the um, uh, Abbas doesn't want to do anything that will help Netanyahu, oh, uh, he, and he's been reluctant to join anything that would help uh, the Trump uh, proposals. He still has not met with them. They are in the region now, talking um, uh, Jason and Jared, et cetera, and still working um, seriously and, and um, involved in negotiations, and hopefully the economic plan can really get off the ground to show that uh, the progress is possible. You have an obstinate uh, Palestinian Authority that continues to pay to slay, that continues to do everything to to make their own people suffer and lose out, and the um, uh, and you see that there's a, people are getting tired of it. The head of Rawabi met with the chief of staff who visited uh, uh, Rawabi, and uh, you know you see a lot of signs that people went to to the conference in uh, uh, the, the the summit meeting, the fifty billion dollars summit. Uh, so I think that this is uh, it remains the one ray of hope. I think that they have been uh, really honest in putting out the messages and, and trying to send a message to the Palestinian people that they are with them and that there are opportunities, and that they have a government that the world gives a pass to all the time. I heard uh, these reports on, on the CNN this weekend on um, NPR that that just completely distort the reality on the ground and and and. You know, place owners. Israel gave 800 building permits in Area A. The Palestinians are building illegally on all these areas, and yet they say, "Well, they're restricted. They're not able to build. They don't have." They talk about the um, the checkpoints. They don't say that the checkpoints have been streamlined and they're working now all the time to cut down the waiting time and and the tens of thousands across every day. None of this gets told. So I hope your listeners, when they when they hear these reports, answer it. Don't let them get away with the lies. It, every phone call you make to a station, to a TV, radio, Internet, respond, and, and you, you never know what a difference you can make. 100%. Thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.